inch was cleared. I tried to pawn this off on Mike, but he was already tagged to lead worship, so you're stuck with me this morning. So if you're new, come back. It gets better, I promise. (laughs) Maybe some of you have experienced this, but I want you to picture the person you're closest to in the world. Now picture one day they sit you down, look you straight in the eyes, and ask you, do you love me? How would that make you feel? Would you be shocked? Perplexed? Hurt even? Now imagine they ask you three times. Of course you love them. Where is this coming from? Are you starting to question yourself? Am I doing something wrong that the person I love most is questioning how I feel for them? Are they having some kind of breakdown? Now replace that person with Jesus. Does that change how you feel? Is it a fair question for him to be asking? While this isn't the point of today's message, this question is not unlike the parable of when you die, will there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Does your life, the way you live, carry yourself, your interactions with others, Do they reflect your love for Christ? Let that be food for thought as we get into John 21, where Peter is faced with this very dilemma. And with that, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, Lord. Lord, thank you for this church and this congregation. Please bless our time together. Uh, Give us ears that are open and hearts willing to receive whatever message you want us to take here today, Lord, as we get into your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now if you open up to John 21, 1 through 14, this isn't the part we're going to focus on, but I want to set the scene. So afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, Simon Peter... Thomas, called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came took the bread, 
and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now I want to point out one thing from this intro that I feel is important. This story is nearly identical to when Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, John, and James to be his disciples. If you look at uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 11, to paraphrase, they're out fishing all night, and again, they've caught nothing. Jesus tells Peter, row out and cast your nets, which Peter protests. But he does what Jesus asks, and they catch so many fish, the nets begin to break. They call over to John and James for help, and they filled both boats so full that the boats began to sink. Peter falls on his knees and tells Jesus, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. To which Jesus replies, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be a fisher of men. Fast forward roughly three years, the span of Jesus' ministry. Now we see a resurrected Jesus repeating the miracle for his disciples. Let's read John 21:15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Simon, son of John. Now, Jesus was the one who told Simon that he was to be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. From that moment on, Simon is referred to as Peter throughout the Gospels. Here, Jesus addresses him as Simon, son of John. Now, I don't have any evidence to back this up, but it feels like the equivalent of today when someone uses your middle name. They do it to get your attention, and it usually means you're in trouble. Verse 16, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Now again, in verse 17, the third time, he, being Jesus, said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Let's stop here for a moment. Seems like a bad case of deja vu for Peter. Three times Jesus asked Simon, son of John, do you love me? All three times Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know I do. To which Jesus responds, feed or take care of my sheep. So what is going on here? This isn't Jesus joking around with the boys and giving Peter a hard time. We're told Peter is hurt by this. As I opened up today, put yourself in Peter's shoes. How would you feel? Why is Jesus acting this way towards Peter? Let's read on verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. In verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. 
And then he said to him, follow me. So Peter is to be a martyr of Christ. I'm sure many of you have heard the story that Peter himself would go on to be crucified, that he, not believing himself to be worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus, so he asked to be crucified upside down. The fact of the matter is we don't know the manner of Peter's death. The stretching out of hands could signify crucifixion. It could also signify being bound. It could be both. It's estimated that Peter dies during Nero's persecution in or shortly before 68 AD, but we don't truly know the manner of his death, other than it's safe to say he was martyred. We need no further proof other than Jesus said he would be. So Peter laid down his life for his Lord, who had given his life for Peter and for the world. But it still begs the question, why does Jesus ask Peter three times to profess his love for him, followed by, feed my sheep? Is he testing Peter to see if he has what it takes to carry this mission out? For remember, it was Peter to whom Jesus spoke, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? This happened when Peter gets out of the boat, he walks on water momentarily, but begins to sink, yet he did get out of the boat. None of the other disciples did. So is Jesus checking for chinks in the armor? I don't believe so. After the third time Jesus questions Peter's love, Peter responds, you know all things. Why would an all-knowing son of God need to test Peter when he already can see the heart of this man? So why the charades? Let's back up for a moment. This is a resurrected Christ who is addressing Peter, but if we rewind a few days, we read in Matthew 16, 22 through 23, Jesus is sharing with his disciples the manner of his death. And Peter says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Later in John 13, 36 through 38, Jesus tells Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow me later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And just as Jesus predicts, Peter denies being a disciple. He denies knowing Jesus three times. On the third denial, immediately after uttering, I don't know the man, the rooster crowed. Peter recalls what Jesus said to him, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Matthew 26, 75. Part of the reason I chose this story is because I can relate to Peter. Peter is a man of action. He speaks and acts before he thinks. As I said earlier, he was the one disciple who got out of the boat, yet he sank. Again, in this scene, John 21, 
It is Peter who is the first out of the boat to see his Lord on shore. Peter is the one to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. When Jesus said one of the twelve would betray him, it was Peter who demanded to know who. When Jesus speaks of his death, it is Peter that says, Never, Lord. Peter who proclaims, I will give my life for you. Peter who chops off the ear of the temple guard when they arrest Jesus. Peter is the first to run to an empty tomb. And it is Peter who denies knowing Christ three times, hours before he is to be put to death to save his own skin. So he goes outside and weeps bitterly. How do you think Peter handled this? Peter is a man who wears his heart on his sleeve. I can almost guarantee you outside of Judas, there's no one who takes Jesus' crucifixion harder than Peter. Notice Peter is absent at the actual crucifixion. John and James are there, but where's Peter? He can't face him, not after what he's done. In the moments and days after Jesus' death, you can picture Peter sulking in a dark, hidden room, hiding from the Romans. He's questioning everything, mainly himself. Then on the third day, the women return and tell the disciples of the empty tomb. Before they can even finish their story, Peter is out the door. While the other disciples are still questioning the women, Peter doesn't have time for that. He's in a dead sprint for the tomb. No care about Romans or temple guards. Peter must see for himself, and he does. Jesus appears to his disciples many times after his resurrection. And here we are again with another appearance, and Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? This isn't for Jesus' sake. This is a resurrected Jesus. He's already died for Peter's sin. This is for Peter. Even with the joy of a resurrected Jesus, Peter is carrying around the weight of his betrayal, his three betrayals. For every betrayal, Jesus reminds Peter of his love for Jesus, followed by a command to feed his sheep, to lead his flock. Jesus recognizes Peter for who he is, and he sees what Peter can't see of himself. Jesus knows what Peter must carry out, and he can't have any distractions. He needs to put this behind him, so for every betrayal, Jesus cleanses with an affirmation for Peter's love for Christ. Peter, feed my sheep, lead my flock. We read in Matthew 16, 16 through 18, Peter has just professed Jesus to be the Messiah, and in verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, 
but by my Father in heaven. And in verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So I have three kids, and as the saying goes, this is why we can't have nice things. We have in our house what we call a not-me-ghost, because every time a hole gets put in a wall or scuffs or dings or scratches in the furniture, stains in the carpet, and we ask, who did this? Not me. Any of you all have a not-me-ghost in your house? But if I look back at my own childhood, I'm being a total hypocrite. It's weird how we kind of forget those things. When I was three, maybe four, my parents had just gotten a custom oak dinner table. And it's probably the nicest piece of furniture my parents have bought and have bought. And three-year-old me finds uh, what I remember to be a slingshot. I think it was like my brother's Boy Scout project. And I had a nail sticking out of it, which was fantastic because I had a tool set. That included a hammer. And this was the 80s, so the tools were metal. They weren't plastic. And this table made a perfect workbench. And so I hammered away at the nail. My brother was going to be so impressed. I, was, I fixed his slingshot. My parents would be amazed by my craftsmanship. And then they weren't. The only thing they noticed were the divots were the point of the nail left in the table we'd had all of a week. <laughs> so now, the parents still have the table, and every time we pull out that sleeve for di holiday dinners and things, that's where Kyle left his mark. So <laughs> we can laugh about it now, but nobody was laughing that day. Fast forward a few years, I'm maybe eight or nine. And I have this keychain. I don't even have keys, so I don't know why I have a keychain. But this, this particular one is like the old landline phone cords, the coiled cord. It's about a foot long, and it's got a clip on the end. And it was neon blue, in case you're curious. <laughs> I decide to put a Sharpie marker on the clip end and spin it above my head like a helicopter. Why? Seemed like a good idea at the time. So we're sitting there watching TV as I'm, you know, my brother looks up and he goes, what did you do? I'm like, what are you talking about? What my tiny, underdeveloped brain didn't realize was that the cap of the Sharpie had come off. So I am slinging permanent ink 360 degrees. It got on the carpet the walls, the ceiling, and my mom's custom new drapes. <laughs> I thought she was going to kill me. I'm surprised she didn't. I thought she was going to light me up like a Christmas tree, and all she could do was slump on the couch and cry. I think I joined her. So now, I shared the last time I preach that one of the things um, I don't like about preaching is every time I get up here and I, I 
seemed to get emotional. So this week, I was like, I'm not, that's not happening this week. I'm not even going to touch on anything that could possibly set me off. So trying to think of three stories to tie it in to the message, right? And the first two stories come to me like that. Now I'm thinking of a third story, and look, I've got plenty of blunders. It should be as easy as drawing a number from a hat. But I, I kind of hit writer's block or what, whatever you want to call it. And then a story comes to mind that ties in, but I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that one, God. I already shared that as part of my testimony, but funny thing is I, I couldn't think of any others. So if I fall apart, this is probably where it's going to happen for me. But So fast forward another few years. My mom was the one that made us go to church. She was raised Baptist, so on Sundays, come hell or high water, you were going to church. And I was 16, and like a lot of 16-year-olds, going through some stuff. And on this particular morning, I decided I was done with church. I was struggling, questioning my faith or lack thereof. But if I'm being honest, I was aiming my arrows where I knew they'd do the most harm. So we had ourselves a knockout, drag out that morning. My mom threatened me, threatened to take my car away, threatened to ground me for life. When that didn't work, she changed tactics, she begged, she pleaded. Maybe it was the other way around, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, I made a very regrettable decision that day. And I don't know how many years it was before I set foot. Back in a church. And my life was a reflection of that. Sometimes I wonder if things have been different. Had I just went. But wouldn't you know it, for whatever reason, my mom still loves me. She prayed for me. And I'm sure there were many times she thought I would never give my life to Christ. I know she never imagined me being up here. God's funny like that. That's the power of Jesus. It's that power that can transform Peter from the stumbling block to the cornerstone of the church. He can transform Saul from persecutor and murderer of Christians to the apostle Paul who gave us the majority of the New Testament. He can make Matthew a hated Roman tax collector and make him a disciple of Christ. 
we see it over and over again in this book, an entire book of flawed, sinful people who are transformed by a loving God called to his purpose. So no matter what you think you've done, no matter how low you've stooped, no matter how bad you think you are, no far gone is too far gone. You're not that powerful. Nothing you can do can remove you from his grip once he has a hold of you. So stop doubting. Do not let Satan distract you with a past you cannot change. For Jesus has wiped your slate clean. If he can reinstate Peter and he can reinstate me, then he can reinstate you, and he already has. That's what he was sent for, and our God never fails. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you will be reinstated. With that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, just thank you for this morning again, Lord. Lord, thank you uh, for this church. Lord, we just thank you for your love and your mercy that you redeem us, a flawed and sinful people, that you sent your son to die for those very sins, to take that on his back as the perfect sacrifice, Lord. Lord, your love endures forever and ever. Amen.